0: Coming up on the Get Lean, E Clean podcast.
1: What are the two diseases that children now get that they never got before? And the answer was, well, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. These were the diseases of adults before. These were the diseases of aging before. I said, all right, well, but kids now get them. And they're not, you know, adults and they're not aging, you know, they're kids, right. but they're getting it. And so what I did was I said, all right, these are also these two diseases, type two diabetes and fatty liver disease. They are the diseases of alcohol. Alcoholics get these diseases, but kids don't drink alcohol. Are they exposed to something that might be like alcohol or that might act like alcohol in their body? And so I opened up my biochemistry text. (laughs) I turned to the alcohol page and there it was right next door. It was sugar. Yeah. Specifically, the sweet molecule in sugar, fructose. Fructose is metabolized in the liver just like alcohol. And it turns out fructose is metabolized in the brain just like alcohol. So I went to this meeting at the NIH and I, and I this is what I said. I said, I think sugar is the bad guy in the story because it's basically doubling as alcohol and it's causing the same diseases.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, E Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grinn, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed best selling author and neuroendocrinologist Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Lustig has fostered a global discussion of metabolic health and nutrition, exposing some of the leading myths that underlie the current pandemic of diet related disease. We discussed his new book, Metabolical, how to protect the liver and feed the gut fibers role in health. Should fructose be blamed for obesity, dietary fats, statins, and much, much more. This was a hard hitting interview with Dr. Lustig. I loved his new book, Metabolical. So definitely check out the book and enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin and I have Dr. Robert Lustig on. Thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, I was telling you before we got on, I I read your book and uh, I don't read a lot of books and this one I read all the way through. (laughs) So uh, I think that shows how good the book was. I I like, that. Yeah, so I wanted to get you on. I know you've written a few other books: Fat Chance, uh, Hacking of American Mind, and then now Metabolical. Uh, I guess um, maybe let the audience know you're a neuroendocrinologist. I worked on practicing saying that a few times.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful.
0: Yeah, and, doesn't uh, fit on the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is there a way a short way to spell, put that out? Um, Not really. No, you
1: know, basically I study uh, how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. And you work mainly with kids? Uh, Yeah, I'm a pediatric neuroendocrinologist. So yes, I'm a, you know, pediatrician. However, you know, it's not like the systems change in adulthood. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've done a lot of research on adults over the years, but yeah, I was boarded to practice pediatrics.
0: And, um, what made you write Metabolical? Obviously your other books I have not read, but I'm curious, did your, did your ch- stance on any of this change? I know, uh, what, 12 years ago you, you did that, uh, YouTube, uh, well you, you were on YouTube for the sugar <laughs> so talking about sugar. That was like that That's going, I, I look, I wanted to see how many views you're up to 17
1: million views on that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, yeah. I didn't think anybody would watch that. I didn't <laughs> think my mother would watch that. In fact, she did not watch that, oh. but 17 million people did. Um, so I wrote Fat Chance back in 2013. Okay. And the reason I wrote it was because I knew that the standard mantra that everybody and his brother was following was exactly what was wrong. And that mantra was, you are what you eat. And I knew that was not true. In fact, what I said in Fat Chance was, you are what you do with what you eat. That metabolism is more important than calories because not every calorie is metabolized the same way. And some calories cause more disease than others. And people needed to understand that in order to be able to switch what they were doing and basically not believe the food industry party line. But yeah, in the yeah. last eight years, from the time of Fat Chance till now, I have come to realize there is an entire literature and an entire dark underbelly of the food industry actually propagandizing. Their products and what they do. And we now have the paper trail to demonstrate how the food industry has actually um, provided a you 40-year know, disinformation campaign about you know, what they were offering the public and how we have succumbed and uh, gotten sick. So in Metabolical, which is half science, half expose, you know, what I did was I said, you know, I got it wrong. I got it wrong back in 2013. Really, the mantra should be, you are what they did with what you eat. And that is the politics and understanding, you know, what, hap- what, what did they know and when did they know it? And when you understand all that, you realize that, in fact, um, we need an complete and entire overhaul of our food system.
0: And I love in the book, you know, towards the end, you start going into reasons and things that, that we should do um, to try to change the food system, which is a lot has to do with subsidies and where the money's going. And we can touch on that maybe towards, maybe towards the the end. Um, But I I wanted to read the, this was right in the beginning and you don't, you don't mess around in this book. This is
1: this is a hard no, I don't. <laughs> this this book calls calls it like it is it's a it's it's as hard hitting as i can possibly be you know if it were if it were a, um, a hollywood book we'd call it a kiss and tell but because it's about diabetes really it's more like a piss and tell
0: yeah and i just uh, a few days ago interviewed dr william davis and he doesn't hold back either on um, on the food system and what's going on in healthcare but I wanted to quote one of the things you said. You said US ha- the U.S. has the best doctors, hospitals, and medical technologies, the most innovative surgeries, the best, the newest drugs, and spends the most per capita on healthcare of all the countries on the globe. And are we healthier? Do we enjoy better healthcare? Do we live longer? And the answer is an empathetic no.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. Ultimately, none of those things have impacted our health one iota the medical system has basically failed us when it comes to chronic disease. And, you know, I don't feel good saying that, you know, because I was part of that system for a very long time. And I would say for the first 20 years of practice, you know, I basically, you know, towed the party line. I did what everybody else did, you know, eat less, exercise more. You know, if you're fat, it's your fault, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but then I started doing the research, and i realized that the research actually didn't fit the party line and was, the science was the... you know really made me realize that you know this was not what was going on and you know the more science i elaborated the more you know shall we say on the other side i seemed to find myself um so i have become in my old age an iconoclast you know trying to you know break down you know and 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 destroy the sacred cows um because they need to be.
0: Was there like a moment where you're like, I just got to start? Was it, was it over time? Was there a moment that hit you uh, maybe with a patient or with something that you read or that sort of made you want to sort of go the other way?
1: Right. So there were three aha moments for me, three. Um, Let me take them in order. Uh, The very first aha moment was um, back in um, 1995. Right, Um, I had just moved to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, a cancer hospital, Mm -hmm. and I was presented with about forty patients who had survived their brain tumors, only to become massively obese because of either the surgery or the radiation or the chemotherapy. So these people had damage to the area of the brain that controls energy balance. It's called the hypothalamus. And so we call this form of obesity, it's an intractable form of obesity called hypothalamic obesity, because the hypothalamus is damaged. Mm. And these kids cannot lose weight, they only gain it. No matter what you do, Mm. they gain weight. And the question, of course, is, you know, like, why? And what do you do about it? Because I had 40 of them, I had to figure out how to help them, right? Well, the the hormone leptin had just been discovered the year before, 1994. And so I postulated at the time that these kids, before the tumor, they could see their leptin, they were normal, but now they couldn't see their leptin. And because they couldn't see their leptin, because that area of the brain was dead, that these kids had brain starvation, that their brain could not tell that the leptin levels in their blood were high, because they were, you know, because they, because fat makes leptin. So more fat, more leptin. But then the leptin is supposed to tell your brain, don't eat so much. But if you can't see it, then you're going to eat like crazy. So I uh, postulated that these kids had what we would call anatomic leptin resistance. That is, they couldn't see their leptin because the brain was damaged. Okay. So then the question is, all right, if that's the case, what are you going to do about it? Well, I then went to the literature and looked downstream of what went on in the hypothalamus. And I knew that these kids released an enormous amount of insulin. Insulin, of course, is the energy storage hormone. So when you eat something, your insulin goes up and that forces it into energy uh, stores in your body, particularly fat. Insulin makes fat. And I knew that. So I figured, well, there must be a connection between that hypothalamus and the pancreas to release insulin. Mm -hmm. Could I block that? And there was a drug at my disposal called octreotide, which inhibits insulin release at the level of the pancreas. So I said, what if we give these very unfortunate kids this drug that blocks insulin? And so we did a study and lo and behold, kids started losing weight but something even more remarkable happened. These kids used to sit on the couch, eat Doritos and sleep. They had lost all interest in the world and anything that was going on around them. We put them on the medicine and all of a sudden people started calling up. I got my kid back. And the kids would say things like, well, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the cloud since the tumor. And they started act, physically exercising on their own, spontaneously. One kid became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. These kids had zero energy. And all of a sudden, because they're on this medicine, they are now physically active. And the parents and the teachers and everyone around them sees it and knows it. It's like amazing, wow. So I said, wow, this is really cool. So then we did a double blind placebo control trial and showed the exact same thing. Then we determined that their energy expenditure had actually gone up. They were actually burning energy better. And the reason was because we'd gotten their insulin down and we showed that the improvement in their physical activity was because we suppressed their insulin. And so this was the first aha, because everyone says, you know, that obesity is because of two behaviors, gluttony and sloth. And the gluttony and sloth is what drives the weight gain. And what we showed was that, no, in fact, obesity is due to too high an insulin level. And the insulin was causing the gluttony and sloth, that the biochemistry drives the behavior. And that obesity was really not being able to see your leptin and excess insulin. And so we completely changed our um, obesity paradigm and we changed what we did for our patients. And instead of running an obesity clinic, I ran an insulin reduction clinic. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We helped a lot of kids, okay? Better than any other uh, uh, program in the country because we focused on the real problem. So that was aha moment number one. Mm -hmm. aha moment number two was, okay, there are a whole bunch of people who don't have brain tumors, who don't have brain damage, who are massively obese, and they have high insulin too. How come? I was asked by the um, NIH to come give a talk at a symposium uh, back in 2007. Uh, on what I thought was the most important environmental insult that led to obesity. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I say? And I said, well, all right, let me look at it this way. What are the two diseases that children now get that they never got before? And the answer was, well, type two diabetes and fatty liver disease. These were the diseases of adults before. These were the diseases of aging before. I said, All right, well, but kids now get them. And they're not, you know, adults and they're not aging, you know, they're kids, right, but they're right. getting it. And so what I did was I said, All right, these are also these two diseases, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease, they are the diseases of alcohol. Alcoholics get these diseases, but kids don't drink alcohol. Are they exposed to something that might be like alcohol? or that might act like alcohol in their body. And so I opened up my biochemistry text. <laughs> I turned to the alcohol page and there it was right next door. It was sugar, yeah. specifically the sweet molecule in sugar fructose. Fructose is metabolized in the liver just like alcohol. And it turns out fructose is metabolized in the brain just like alcohol. So I went to this meeting at the NIH. And I, and I this is what I said. I said, I think sh- sugar is the bad guy in the story because it's basically doubling as alcohol and it's causing the same diseases. And, you know, after I spoke, they applauded. And then there was the bathroom break. And they didn't come back. <laughs> for the rest of the symposium. Really? And I, I had to go to the bathroom. So I left and I went to the bathroom. And they they captured me. They actually sat on me in the bathroom. These are toxicologists, scientists screaming at me. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You're right. Sugar is just like alcohol. Sugar is a toxin. Sugar is what's driving this. You have to tell everyone. (laughs) I said, well, I mean, toxicologists, you know, they got so worked up over this.
0: (laughs) They cornered you in the bathroom.
1: Yeah, they cornered in the <laughs> bathroom, wouldn't let me go back to the symposium. Again. Yeah, it was like crazy. Um, so that was the second aha. And then the third aha wasn't even my aha. It was my colleague's aha. So um, remember, I mentioned the dark underbelly of the industry. My colleagues at UCSF, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz, in 2016, published a paper where they had actually found the paper trail. Between the Sugar Association and two Harvard School of Public Health scientists, the head of the Department of Nutrition, Fred Stair, and his associate, Mark Hegstead, who became head of the USDA, where they actually paid these guys off to write two review articles saying saturated fats, the bad guy, and leave sugar alone. And, you know, this was not disclosed. And they made about 50000 in today's dollars from writing this. And basically, you know, it's propaganda. And so I came to realize, you know, through that, that, you know, this was a put up job. This, you know, was, this was destined because of dark forces. And so that was the third aha. And that's really the moment when I realized I had to write this book, Metabolical, you know, to basically clear the air and make it very you know clear to the public you know what's really going on
0: yeah wow those are those are some good stories i mean good and bad right well um, yeah a lot of bad a lot of uh, bad yeah but it is what it is um there was another part in the book that i liked this quote was we spend 97.5% of our healthcare budget on individual treatment and only 2.5% on prevention right i thought that yeah Go ahead. Well,
1: the problem is when you understand the molecular mechanisms, when you understand how this actually works, when you understand what causes type two diabetes and hypertension and dyslipidemia and cardiovascular disease and cancer and dementia and fatty liver disease and polycystic ovarian disease, all these chronic metabolic diseases that are basically chewing through our entire healthcare budget. Yep. Okay. 75% of all healthcare dollars go into those eight diseases Okay. when you look at the molecular mechanisms, you realize that none of them have a drug target. These are not druggable. And the reason is because these are mitochondrial diseases and we don't have any medicines that make it to the mitochondria. The only thing that makes it to the mitochondria is food. These diseases are not druggable but they are foodable right i was gonna say (laughs) that hasn't stopped big pharma from coming up with all sorts of you know medicines to try to ameliorate or placate or smooth over you know paper over you know the problem ultimately we cannot solve chronic disease with medicine it has to be solved with food and that's the reason why I had to write Metabolical because, you know, healthcare is going down the tubes, and you know, we gotta we gotta salvage it, we gotta rescue it somehow, and we can't do it with our current processed food diet.
0: Yeah, I know. A chapter you mentioned it's not druggable. I think it's right. It's foodable. It's right. it's right. And and on that point, you talk two things, two points you mentioned was protecting the liver and feeding the gut. And perhaps you can elaborate a little bit on that. Sure. So protect
1: the liver. So protect the liver from what? Well, you know, the liver is your primary detoxification organ. Okay. It chews up a lot of poisons, but any poison can overwhelm the liver's capacity, right? Some overwhelm it easily, some overwhelm it a little harder, but ultimately if you overwhelm your liver's capacity to be able to detoxify something, then you're going to get sick from it. That's the way it works. Right? So the liver has several toxins that affect it, you know, cyanide affects the liver. Okay. Causes ATP not to be able to be, you know, uh, used because it's a mitochondrial toxin. That's what cyanide is. It's, you know, an acute, You know, very potent mitochondrial toxin. Sarin, ricin, VX gas, you know, I mean, there are whole hosts of acute toxins that work in parts per billion Mm -hmm. and keel over and die. But there are also chronic toxins that don't necessarily kill you with one exposure, but with serial exposure, they will no doubt kill you. Like, for instance, arsenic, carbon tetrachloride, benzene, tobacco smoke. All right. where one exposure may not kill you but multiple exposures will well turn alcohol another one sure, you know sure. you know you can ha- you can go on one binge you can go on two binges mm-hmm. you can even go on maybe a hundred binges but you know what once you get to about a hundred binges you're gonna have a problem and it might just kill you well it turns out sugar is just like alcohol And so it's the same concept. It's not one high sugar meal. It's, you know, when every meal is a high sugar meal. And that's what we have in America today. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. Okay. They're all high sugar meals. Example, the National School Breakfast Program. 29% of all children today eat their breakfast in the National School Breakfast Program and what is the national school breakfast program it's a bowl of fruit loops and a glass of orange juice that's what it is <clears throat> now the american heart association says that children should get no more than 3 teaspoons of added sugar per day that's 12 grams for the day mm-hmm. So what's a bowl of fruit loops and a glass of orange juice? That's 41 grams. Yeah. So that's more than triple and it's just breakfast. So they are consuming more than triple their limit. And they've just started. So this is going to have negative consequences. And that is what we're seeing across the board. So. That's, and that's just kids. I mean, you know, it's really no different for adults when you consider the fact that 62% of the added sugar in our diet is in ultra processed foods. Okay. And ultra processed foods now account for 56% of all the food sold in America and 67% of what kids eat, you know, then you shouldn't be surprised that we're in this mess, So that's what has to be fixed. So protect the liver, protect the liver from sugar, protect the liver from branched chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine valine, which is high in corn fed beef, chicken, and fish. Protect the liver from glyphosate, Roundup, because it has uh, its own negative effects. Protect the liver from other heavy metals like cadmium, which is high in cocoa. Protect the liver from uh, other uh, toxins that are in our environment as well. Okay. Feed the gut, feed the gut. What? Well, what the bacteria in your gut like to feed on is fiber. That's food for bacteria. The reason there's fiber in your diet is because now you're feeding your gut and your gut will take the fiber because you can't metabolize the fiber, but the gut can, and they will metabolize it into various components that they need to grow such as short chain fatty acids. Okay. And they have, and they will also extract, you know, flavonoids and other things that come with the fiber fraction. Bottom line, if you don't feed your gut, your gut will feed on you. It will actually strip those bacteria will strip the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, exposing them and denuding them and putting you at risk for things like leaky gut inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, et cetera, all which lead to systemic inflammation, insulin resistance, and then chronic disease as well. So protect the liver, feed the gut, protect the liver from sugar, feed the gut with fiber. So you need a low sugar, high fiber diet. That's called real food. Unfortunately, the Western diet is the opposite. And so that's why we need to change our food supply.
0: And, uh, I'm sure people will think, well, what about, I'm sure you get this question. Like, what about fruit? Um, right. everyone wants to, <laughs> and I get That's this simple. question too, Very
1: and simple. I think I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. Um, uh, sure. yeah. So fruit has sugar. Sure. That's why it's sweet. And it's the same fructose molecule as in, you know, ice cream and cake and soda. There's no difference in the molecule. There is a difference in the amount because the amount of sugar in fruit is actually kind of low. It's not high, it's low. But the thing that makes fruit okay is the amount of fiber. Right. So there are two kinds of fiber. There's soluble and insoluble. They are not the same. Soluble fiber is like pectins or inulin, like what holds jelly together. Insoluble fiber is cellulose or chitin, things like the stringy stuff in celery. Now, fruit has both. You need both. Yeah. Now, why do you need both? So imagine you had a spaghetti colander, metal bowl with holes. You run the water, water runs right through. Okay. Now take a blob of petroleum jelly, throw it into the center of the colander. Now run the water. Still runs right through. Maybe it bounces off the jelly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now take your finger and rub it all the way around the inside of the colander. Now run the water. Now the water does not run right through. Now the water is blocked. Now there's a barrier, all right? Mm-hmm. The jelly used the mm-hmm. colander as a scaffolding to be able to create a, an impenetrable secondary barrier. Well, this is exactly what happens in your intestine. You can actually see it on electron microscopy. The cellulose the insoluble fiber acts like the colander, the soluble fiber, like the pectins, plug the holes in that lattice work. And together they form a gel on the inside of the intestine, a secondary barrier that actually keeps sugars from making it to the liver thus protecting the liver. And guess what? If you're not cons- if you're not absorbing it early, they go further down the intestine where the bacteria can chew them up. You're feeding the gut. So fruit is okay because the fiber is the antidote and it's in the f- a form that your body can use. Now, unfortunately, once you smoothie it, right. you throw it in the Vitamix or the Breville, what you've done is the blades of the, uh, Vitamix will have sheared the, um, uh, insoluble fiber to smithereens. And now you can't set up that gel because you don't have the lattice work. It'd be like taking a fish net and taking a you know, bunch of scissors to it and then expecting it to be able to catch fish. Got it.
0: Yeah. It's so it's the drinking of the juices. Um, that's, co- that's more of an issue than actually eating it. That's right. So eat your fruit, don't drink it. And as far as feeding the gut, um, fiber's role, is that essentially you want to um, have natural sources of fiber, obviously, like, you know, you see a lot of this like Metamucil and there's Metamucil, I think. Yeah. But you're talking more whole foods, obviously. So
1: Metamucil is soluble fiber. Metamucil is psyllium. It's a soluble fiber. Now it's not that soluble fiber has no use. It has use. There are six things that fiber does when you have soluble and insoluble together. Metamucil does two. Cardboard does too, because that's straight cellulose. <laughs> what you want is you want a combination of the metamucil and the cardboard. <laughs> All right. Now, I dare you to be able to find that in any food other than real food. Right. Now, I will tell you just, you know, off topic, we are working on a fix for that. It's not ready yet. We're in clinical trials, but we're hoping to be able to introduce a fiber that can be basically baked into food that would double as soluble and insoluble fiber Hmm. that would then make processed food healthier. But, you know, that's for another day.
0: One other topic I wanted to chat about as well was, um, you know, cholesterol's role and statins are everywhere, (laughs) as you know, and you mentioned in the book. Perhaps maybe just give an overview of how ineffective they can really be and, and sort of um, how it's just become overabundant and unnecessary.
1: Right. Well, I wouldn't say unnecessary. That's not quite right. Um, So let me, let me uh, explain um, the fat story. Okay. All right. Once upon a time, we used to eat a lot of fat. Okay. We ate relatively little carbohydrate. And we pretty much only fat. (laughs) Okay. Those were the days of, you know, the hunters, you know, in the, in the evolutionary scheme. Right. Then of course the saturated fats for the most part, mostly saturated fats. Then the gatherers came along and we introduced agriculture Mm -hmm. and we started eating a lot more carbohydrate. All right. What we saw was that when we started adding sugar to our diet, which was basically in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when, you know, CNH and Domino and Texas, Louisiana, Hawaii and the pot still and everything, you know, really, you know, sort of got going. We started seeing a marked increase in cardiovascular disease. And the question of course is, you know, what was the cause of that at the time we didn't know. And then in 1955, uh, President Eisenhower had a heart attack. And so then this question came straight to the fore. What's causing all the heart disease? And there were two camps. One camp was saturated fat was the bad guy. And that was led by uh, a Minnesota epidemiologist named Ansel Keys. Mm -hmm. But there was another camp that said sugar was the problem. And that was led by a British physiologist, nutritionist, physician by the name of John Yudkin. Okay. they both wrote books <laughs> <laughs> and they duked it out throughout the sixties and seventies. What caused heart disease? Was it the fat or was it the sugar in the mid 1970s? Three, we learned three things that basically sealed Yudkin's fate. They threw him under the bus. Okay. And we went saturated fat, uh, you know, as the problem, whole hog, And, you know, for the next 40 years, no one was allowed to question it. So here's what we learned. In the early 1970s, we learned about a molecule in our bloodstream called LDL, low-density lipoproteins. And it won Brown and Goldstein a Nobel Prize for discovering this. And the reason they discovered this was because there are patients who are missing the receptor for LDL off their Liver, they can't clear the LDL. Their LDL levels are in the hundreds, and they get heart attacks at age 18 and die, which is true, and still true. Yeah. And it's not that Brown and Goldstein were wrong. Everything they said was right. Uh so LDL was then fingered by others to be the bad guy. Right. Now, as it turns out, there's another bad guy which is actually even worse than LDL, it's called triglyceride. And we ignored that. Then secondly, we learned that dietary fat, in increasing your dietary fat, increases your LDL level in your blood. We learned that in the 70s also. Mm -hmm. And then finally, in the late 70s, we learned that in large populations, LDL levels correlated with risk for heart disease. So if dietary fat is A and LDL is B and heart disease is C, well, what we learned was if A led to B and B correlates with C, then A must lead to C. Therefore, dietary fat raises your LDL, which causes heart disease. And that was it. And they threw Yutkin under the bus, never to be heard from again. They took his office away at the University of London. They gave him mm-hmm. a room closet, okay, and they took all his grants away. And he died in ignominy in 1995, never to be heard from again. But you know relegated to the dustbin of history, mm-hmm. all because of this you know shall we say perverted notion. Now, it is true that indeed dietary fat raises your LDL. A does lead to B. I don't argue that. And it is true that B correlates with C, but that doesn't mean B causes C. B could lead to D, E, F, G, H, and I and not come back to C. And actually, the contrapositive of an argument is not no A, no C. It's really no C, no A. (laughs) This doesn't even make sense on logistical grounds. So the bottom line was, you know, we bought this concept lock, stock, and barrel and we didn't test it. But we basically turned our food supply over to make Entenmann's fat-free cakes.
0: Well, I remember. Oh, I remember. <laughs> My father had snack his wells, the snack eating wells.
1: Entenmann's yeah. fat-free cakes. All right? So yeah. I, I was there. And I, I, I saw it. So the question is, was it true? And the answer is, now we know that, in fact, there's not one LDL, there's two. Right. One is called large buoyant. One's called small dense. When you measure LDL, you're measuring both. And it turns out the large buoyant is driven by dietary fat. That's true. turns out the large buoyant is kind of cardiovascularly neutral. Doesn't matter. Right. The one that matters is the small dense, this other species, which is about 20% of your LDL. And it turns out that's responsive to carbohydrate. And it turns out that's the bad guy when it comes to heart disease. So when we went low fat, we went high carbohydrate and high sugar. And so our LDL went down, but we got more heart disease because we had more small, dense LDL, even though our total LDL went down. And so this didn't make any sense to anybody until we pieced out these two different species of LDL. And now it's starting to make more sense. And now we realize that that small dense LDL is actually the remnant of triglyceride after triglycerides offloaded its lipid in the adipose tissue. So now we've got the evolution of the different bad particles and how they relate to each other. So now it's very clear that fat wasn't the problem, but Hey, the fat, drug industry made a fortune on statins and still do. Mm -hmm. So the question is, do statins work? And the answer is for secondary prevention, if you've already had a heart attack, if you already declared yourself as at risk, statins do seem to help. But for primary prevention, so like if you go to your doctor and your doctor says, hey, your LDL is high, you should go on a statin, okay? The increase in survival from taking a statin for primary prevention of heart disease is a total of four days. Yeah. And I remember reading that in the book. <laughs> and four days. Yeah. And the reason is because you're not affecting the bad particle. You're not affecting the small dense LDL. All you're doing is bringing down the large buoyant, and who cares about that? So we've gotten this entire thing completely wrong. We have basically stood modern medicine on its head in the hope that somehow we could do something good. And all we did was make things worse. So that is my job is to basically fix that. Good luck to me. <laughs>
0: yeah. And uh, you mentioned the markers that you should look at, like
1: triglycerides to HDL ratio. Correct. That's a, that's a much better marker because what that is a marker of is how well your insulin's working. It's a marker of insulin sensitivity. So a triglyceride to HDL ratio has much more information in it. That's valuable than any cholesterol level. So, you know, we have to rethink this. The pro- question is, does your doctor know this? Well, I wrote metabolical to try to train them because, you know, they don't get nutrition you know, in in medical school. So like, how are they going to learn this? You got to get your book. (laughs) Well, Okay. And so I'm doing your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then uric acid
0: is something that um, has been coming up lately. Um, And I know uric acid, a lot of people um, believe that, you know, meat, alcohol are Mm -hmm. reasons for people getting gout. What are your thoughts around um, getting your uric
1: acid levels tested? So, two of my good colleagues and friends, Rick Johnson and David Perlmutter, have both written books in the last month. Yeah, I noticed. That, eh? yeah. um, uh, that have uh, basically sort of uh, you know fingered uric acid as a bad guy in the story. Um, uh, Rick wrote a book called "Why Nature Wants Us to Be Fat." Nature wants us to be fat. Yeah, I have that one. And uh, David Perlmutter wrote uh, "Drop Acid." Mm-hmm. Great name. Um, <laughs> so they're not wrong. Uh, they think that uric acid is a bad guy. And I do too. I don't know if it's the only bad guy. Right. It's a bad guy, one of many. Um, so I'm on board with that. And we found uric acid to be a problem in our uh, uh, studies of adolescents with metabolic syndrome. They had high uric acid. So you know we have reason to suspect it's a bad problem too. What we've learned about uric acid is that it inhibits mitochondria from being able to uh, burn fat. Mm. It inhibits an enzyme necessary to shuttle uh, uh, fats into the mitochondria for burning. And so when uric acid levels go up, you end up making more fat instead of burning more fat. And that's a bad thing when you're trying to stay healthy. So there is definitely uh, a role for uric acid and uric acid inhibition in terms of disease and disease prevention. And so, you know, what makes uric acid go up? Two things, meat, red meat, purines, because that's what makes the uric acid. That's where it comes from. And the other is sugar. And the reason is because sugar causes a depletion of phosphate in the liver when it's um, uh, metabolized and that depletion of phosphate then takes um, ATP down to uric acid and you end up excreting it. So Ben Franklin knew this. He actually wrote an ode to his gout way back in the late 1700s. And he knew he had to stay away from red meat and sugar. So I guess I'm, I'm curious
0: your thoughts on, uh, on red meat. Um, quality red meat. Let's just say you're having grass fed grass, finished meat, you know, almost every day. Um, but you're all your metabolic markers seem, seem in line. What what are your thoughts around
1: protein too? I'm curious. So, so let's take two countries that eat more meat than us, Argentina and New Zealand. Both of them eat more meat than us. Mm -hmm. We eat 23 kilos of meat per year. Argentina eats 44 kilos of meat per year. They eat double what we do and they don't have gout and they don't have uh, uh, heart disease or cancer at the rates that we do, much lower, despite the fact that they eat double the meat. And the reason is because they don't eat as much sugar either, <laughs> right? Now, it is true that meat can do this and it is true that there is, you know, uric acid to be made from purines in meat. I'm not arguing that the point is we didn't have a problem with this until we became insulin resistant. So in the face of insulin resistance, then U S meat becomes a problem. And, and soy That's it. That's and, being fed to the animals, uh, corn fed branch chain, amino acids, more insulin resistance, more uh, uh, higher purine uh, content, also, and you know, sugar as well. So, if you eat Argentinian beef, doesn't seem to be a problem. If you eat American beef, that's another story. Mm-hmm. So, meat is not good for you. Its question is, how bad for you is it? And the answer is, it depends on whose meat it is, where it's being sourced. And where it's being sourced that's right and what those cows are eating so that's one of the issues now having said that there's not it's not like red meat is great for you okay it does have all of the uh, amino acids you need it has more tryptophan which is absolutely essential and you know vegans great. are to some extent, tryptophan deficient.
0: Creati- so, uh, creatine. Non-plastic. What about like creatine and the B vitamins and things like that? Right,
1: and the, those are much higher in, um, in red meat. So there are things to be had, but there's another thing that's in red meat also that's a potential problem and that's called choline. Now you need choline. Choline is either sort of, uh, uh, turned into acetylcholine in your brain, which is a neurotransmitter and you need it or phosphatidylcholine, which is necessary for lipid transport around the body. It's used in the liver to make those lipoproteins like, you know, uh, triglyceride. All right. So you need choline. Choline is essential. You must have choline. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. Excess choline will be metabolized by your gut into a compound called trimethylamine or TMA, which then goes to your liver, and gets oxidized to something called TMAO, Trimethylamine oxide, which Stanley Hazen at Cleveland Clinic has shown is the stickiest substance that our body makes, and it lines our arteries and is probably one of the primary drivers of heart disease. And TMAO levels correlate with heart disease very, very tightly. And since choline is the source of the TMAO, that makes it a question mark as to whether eating a lot of meat is a great idea. So. I'm not telling you red meat is bad. I'm not telling you red meat is good, all right? But it depends on where it's from and it depends on how much and depends on whether or not it's being turned into TMAO or not. The point is that all of these scientists, and I put that in quotes because they haven't looked at the science. They say red meat's bad because of the saturated fat. It's not. Red meat might not be great. Red meat might have problems. But it's more because of the iron, which is an oxidative stress, or the branched chain amino acids, which can cause insulin resistance, or the TMAO. So got to know what, what the real problem is.
0: And where do you recommend uh, people get their protein from, their protein sources from? Because uh, Best you know, place?
1: Yeah. Eggs. Next best place? Fish. Neither of which are on the vegan menu. Got it. And,
0: um, as we finish up here, cause we're getting closer to the hour, we could go, go another hour. Maybe we'll do this down the road. I'd love to, um, towards the end of the book, you talk about ways to solution as to how we can maybe help the food industry and change this obesity ep- epidemic. You talk about incentivizing real food,
1: perhaps maybe just touch on that as we, we close up. Sure. So the bottom line is, um, our processed food diet is killing us. You know, and the book makes, hopefully makes that very yeah. apparent and clear. So the question, what do you do about it? Well, number one, everyone votes. And you vote 21 times a week. The question is, what are you voting for? If everyone voted against something, you know. It wouldn't be there. The industry would hear it. All right. Now. That's hard, you know, boycotts don't work very well. I'm not, you know, calling for a boycott of processed food. We ultimately need processed food. We just have to make it healthier. We are actually doing that. Um, I am part of a um, uh, scientific con- uh, group that has um, uh, been working with an offshore uh, processed food company in the Middle East to actually improve the metabolic profile of their entire portfolio can be done. Um, Unilever and Danone uh, did this exercise for themselves and they were able to get rid of 14% of the sugar in their portfolio. Mm. We think that's a drop in the bucket. We think we can get rid of 78% of the added sugar in this company's uh, portfolio.
0: Yeah. I mean, if the big food companies decide to make some changes in their formulations, I'm sure that obviously that can go a long way. It could, and that's what we're trying
1: to prove to the rest of the world: is that this can be done, and it can be done, you know, um, without, you know, still making a profit and sustainably. So, you know, working at the level of the industry, uh, you know, toward toward a common goal is uh, one one thing that could be done.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, A second thing that could be done is um, get rid of the subsidies, because the subsidies are all things that kill us: corn, wheat, soy, sugar. That's what the subsidies are for. And the reason is because those are all storable food, commodities. Okay. So you can sell them on the commodities exchange. You cannot sell an orange on the commodities exchange. You can sell frozen concentrated orange juice on the commodities exchange. So once it's processed, it becomes storable food. And that then reduces depreciation and increases shelf life and makes it cheaper and, you know, makes it a commodity. Problem is, it's killing you. So is it a good idea to consume something that kills you, even if it's cheap? <laughs> not really. Right. So that's the, you know, the question is, how do we get rid of subsidies, food subsidies? There is not an economist on the planet who believes in food subsidies. And the reason is because they distort the market. Let the right. market work. Yeah. Let, you know, whatever it is, come to whatever price it's supposed to be at. Even the libertarians should be able to get on board with that, you know, because, you know, if, you know, ultimately subsidies distort the market and that's, you know, a major problem. So I think that that is the single most important, um, uh, you know, move, move. Thing, that, thing that has to fall right. in order to be able to make any headway. In this And that is something that government is in control of. And that's why we need government to help us. Because if we changed the cost, okay, we would change people's diets. Right. I mean, processed food is so
0: much cheaper than real food for the most part. Although, you know, you mentioned eggs. Right?
1: Well, eggs are expensive. And when the price of eggs go up, people stop eating eggs. And the reason is because there's nothing uh, uh, addictive in them. But, you know, sugar is another story the, the the most, the three most price inelastic items, that is the, the items that don't reduce in sales when the price goes up are fast food, soft drinks, and juice. And the reason is because they have an addictive substance in them. People keep so, buying them. And we keep buying them. And the food industry, of course, knows that. Yeah. Well, this was
0: great. This, this was a quick, a quick hour, <laughs> quick hour. So I, nope. I, I really, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate pre- your time. Yeah. I appreciate the message that you're spreading through your book and through getting on podcasts. Um, and, um, this is definitely a book that I recommend or if you're watching on YouTube, there it is. <laughs> and uh, metabolical, uh, Dr. Robert Lustig, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me.